0: All right, Nick, here's the deal. We have some podcasting housekeeping to do. On live while we're recording? Live while we're recording. First off, I am recording from a different place in the new Chicago studio. So hopefully the audio sounds better and not worse.
1: Yeah, I made a point to to change nothing and somehow my audio will still sound worse.
0: Perfect. Uh, Next up is If you haven't noticed, for the people following us, we are a monthly podcast now because we both have jobs and we still want to keep doing this.
1: were we ever not a monthly podcast?
0: Yeah, we were bi-weekly for the longest time and then I moved and we took like a month and a half off and then we've kind of just been doing monthly. But it's official. We're a monthly podcast. Did we lose any followers? I hope not. Oh, man. Dear listener, we apologize. If more people listened, we would do this every other week.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm not going to guilt you or anything. I'm happy you're here. Yeah. We
0: honestly, we'd just be talking about this without anyone else listening. So for you, Ted, well, well, what we did, who's what we did to to for us, years great. before we
1: started recording it.
0: Yeah. Um,. Third piece of housekeeping, Nick. And, and this is very specific to this episode. So, the guy that we're covering today, I have spent the past two weeks, maybe a little bit longer than that, trying to find an angle on him. And I think out of all of the filmmakers that we've covered thus far in the podcast, he's probably the... Uh, he's just a guy that, like, I, I i don't have an in for. Um, So... This is a Korean in film uh, podcast where we pick a movie that we really like. We find the director and we do a deep dive on their filmography to see what we like and what we don't. What's good? And what's what the movie we really
1: like for this person? I've got
0: a couple for him. Um, the one that I kind of was pushing for, because I really wanted to see if I could get you to watch it, and you didn't, uh, was The Finest Hours. But he also okay. just came out with Cruella. Um, he's done some like notable blockbusters, some notable indies. However, narratively, I just don't have a fix for him.
1: Well, usually that uh, gets established a little bit more once we deep dive into that career, you know? Well, let's find
0: it out. So today, we're talking about Craig Gillespie. Yeah. My favorite elementary school teacher was Mrs. Gillespie, no relation.
1: My favorite person I knew in elementary school was named Craig.
0: Hey, hey. That's not true. I just I just made that up. Oh, I thought that was gonna be great. Yeah, your favorite elementary school person was Rob, right?
1: I mean, I don't know. I don't know if we need to pick favorites. You know, I don't know anyone named Craig. (laughs) Uh, That was a real
0: nice cover for like fifty percent of our audience base. Who are your friends from elementary school?
1: No, no. Wait, no. I did. I had a boss named Craig. Once, he was like a boss's boss's boss. Uh, British guy, really
0: liked Oasis. Oh, which could describe any
1: British person.
0: Yeah, I mean, Oasis is one of the greatest bands of all time. Every once in a while, like Oasis will be on the soundtrack for a movie, and I'll just remember, like, oh yeah, Oasis is in my top five favorite bands of all time.
1: No, what Craig used to say was there are two great bands ever: the Beatles and Oasis, and that's it. I was like, alright, Craig, got opinions. They are strong. Alright, well, nothing else about the dude.
0: Let's talk about Craig Gillespie. Because he is Sure.
1: Like, I, I watched a, a couple
0: of interviews and stuff with him. He seems like a really cool guy. Um yeah. certainly on the list of directors that I would want to have a beer with. Um but uh, let's let's start at the beginning. <sighs> Get ready for the way, way back machine. I'm gonna crack my back. Do a little stretch. Alright. <clears throat> Craig Gillespie was born September 1st, 1967
1: in Sydney, Australia. Oh, he's an Aussie. That's
0: cool. Yeah. I I thought for a second about attempting an Australian accent and realized it's not good. So.
1: Don't. Yeah.
0: Craig came to New York City. Uh, He actually started out in the business. He was working for ad agencies and then eventually moved from there into directing. Um, And he actually continues to direct commercials up to this day. Um, one of the really cool interviews I was watching, he was talking about like how he really made the leap into directing. You'll probably appreciate the story, Nick. He was like, uh, doing ad cover and copy and all kinds of things like that. And, uh, you know, his buddies from uh, school and people he had met, I think he was living in like Greenwich village at the time. They would go out and they would film stuff on their own. And he kind of like put together a reel of like homemade stuff to bring to, I, I want to say he was at Leo Burnett. I could be wrong about that one. But anyway, so he would bring it to th- the company was like, Hey, look, I would like to direct commercial for you guys. Here's my reel. Take a look at it. And basically they were like, No no no. Like every dickhead who can't afford anything comes in with a reel that looks exactly like this. You're very valuable to us doing the job that you're doing. Like I, I could get ten guys off the street who can give me this exact same reel. So he saved up and I think he said it took him like a year. But basically, he just, like, maxed out a bunch of credit cards, bought, like, a bunch of fancy-ass equipment, hired people, shot for, like, a weekend, and then had, over the next, like, nine months, just reaching for favors, getting people to edit snippets of the commercials and getting sound music for it and uh, sound mixing for it and stuff like that. Anyway, he spent, like, a buttload of money on it and brought him that, and they signed him that day. So a guy who literally just kind of, like, made magic out of nothing gambled on himself and that's how we started directing commercials.
1: I mean that's cool. That's a that's a real go-getter mentality as they say in the biz.
0: And, and now that we're talking about it, maybe the go-getter mentality is like the loose framework we can hang his career around. I think maybe that's the best we can do. Um
1: and again we can't analyze the framework till we analyze the movies. We'll get there together, man. Right. No need to get there before we go. Well let's start.
0: Um, his first movie is 2007's Mr. Woodcock. Nick, have you n- seen this movie?
1: No. Uh, however, when I worked at Blockbuster, I recall this movie being on the shelves and it was a movie that everyone returned and no one seemed to ever enjoy.
0: No, it's not an enjoyable movie by any standards. I, for some reason, had always thought that this movie starred um, John Heater.
1: It, it, wait, this movie doesn't star John Heater.
0: No, this um, this is a uh, Sean William Scott vehicle. Huh, ah, huh. I know, right?
1: I swear, I thought this was Billy Bob Thornton and John Heater.
0: I did too. They must have done a movie together. School for Scoundrels. That's the one. Yes. I can only imagine it has a very similar premise.
1: School for Scoundrels, which is not Dinner for Schmucks. That's a different movie.
0: Are you looking into School for Scoundrels right now?
1: No, I don't want to talk about that. I want to talk about (laughs) whatever the fuck Mr. Woodcock is. Are you sure you
0: want to talk about Mr. Woodcock? Um, No, I
1: just just sighed. I I gave a long sigh. All
0: right, uh, so let's break it down real quick. The plot is um, Fat Kid in middle school has a really terrible, abusive gym teacher he grows up to be, like, a motivational speaker and self-help author, comes back to his hometown, finds out his mom is banging said evil teacher, and he has problems with it, and they have to work out their differences.
1: <sighs> so it's sort of like Big Bully a little, but with uh, more of a teacher-student type thing.
0: Yeah, I, I. here's the thing. There's a lot of tropes in this movie specifically that just kind of grind my nerves um so it was already kind of doomed from the start like the the self-help author or the motivation whatever that like the successful person having to live by their own crap kind of mentality i i hate that as just a comedic setup i don't think it ever really works um the, the fat kid who comes back skinny and everyone he meets has to comment on his weight is i don't like that either um
1: I like I like the movie Just Friends. Yeah,
0: isn't that movie stuff, too where like everyone he meets is like oh look at you, you used to be a fat asshole. <laughs>
1: yeah, no that joke doesn't work, but the premise can work.
0: Um But and then the worst one is it's not like the liar revealed, it's the I see this person as the asshole that he really is, and everyone else views him as a god. Yeah. Yeah, that's also a premise that I fucking hate. Um and, and so, this has got all three of those wrapped in, uh, on top of a bunch of like really, really bad
1: jokes. I mean, the title, the title in and of itself is a pretty bad joke, right? Uh, yeah. It's like I a penis. So. It's like a penis. It's a penis joke, right?
0: So, it could be that he's a dick because he is a dick. It's Billy Bob Thornton and he's, you know, riding that bad Santa wave. So, it could be that. Yeah. Or it could be the fact that, like, you know, he has sex with. John william scott's mom a lot and aggressively so it could be a horny joke I don't know, they don't really specify which one it is
1: i don't know i feel, i feel like if you're gonna name the villain character mr woodcock and then name your movie after that i think they're calling him a penis man a, a, a man made of penis
0: well he does have a very high libido in this film you know well,
1: yeah that, that checks
0: uh, but the mom is played by Susan Sarandon, and like I, I always love seeing her. I don't think she's ever really been bad in a movie.
1: Why is she in this?
0: It gets worse. So, um, Amy Poehler is like a major supporting character as Sean William Scott's agent.
1: In 07, that 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 that's fine. I'm okay with that.
0: I would say she probably has the most successful amount of jokes. Um, you know, she's playing that the also makes sense. Big high Hollywood agent and doing that kind of stereotypical setup of belittling everything and everyone around her in the small town, that kind of shit. Um, And then his best friend is Ethan Suplee. Fat Ethan Suplee or skinny Ethan Suplee? Medium. Like he's not a blow levels, but he's not jacked What? He's in that middle period. He's not jacked, but he's not blow.
1: But this isn't like butterfly effects. Ethan Suplee.
0: I don't remember what butterfly Ethan Suplee looks like. American History X, Ethan Supply. I feel like Blow is the heaviest Ethan Supley has ever been.
1: That would all be around the same era. This would be about four years later. So, So yeah. A big dude... He's starting to lose the weight, but not to the point where he lost work until he got jacked. Yeah. But anyway, so, like,
0: it's a dumb movie. Um, Maybe the worst thing about it is the ending, where there is a, a... blatant sequel baiting and multiple end credit little like teasers that you don't really care about i don't know oh
1: so they thought mr woodcock was a marvel
0: movie yeah back in 2007 before iron man um
1: the the iron man john Favreau watched fucking this movie and went i got it
0: (laughs) so here's the thing i have in my description i've been trying to paint a picture of like a broad mid-2000s comedy. It's not like a straight-up gross-out comedy, but it's in that, like, it's a cousin to that. I don't think we can blame Craig Gillespie. So, from what I found out, he left production after negative test screenings of the movie, and it was reshot um, with the director of Wedding Crashers, David Dobkin. And basically, from what I can surmise, the original tone was much darker and they tried to make it a little bit more frat packy okay judging off of his next movie i'm sure that like i still probably wouldn't have liked his version of mr woodcock but i do think it might have been a little bit more successful
1: there might have been more value to it if the you know the actual gillespie vision would have come through as opposed to it just ripping off bad comedies from that era
0: yeah, because that's a thing. Better, or better comedies from that era. Yeah, at the end of the day, I would be like, yeah, if I wanted to see this type of comedy, like, go watch Wedding Crashers. It's a better movie, even with its problems. Sure. Um, so yeah, that's Mr. Woodcock. It comes out in 2007. It is held because of all the reshoots and the post-production troubles. So he actually comes out with his second movie that same year in 2007. And that is Lars and the Real Girl. Um,
1: this I This I have seen. Uh, It's been a while.
0: I feel like I don't want to hang out with the person who it hasn't been a while that they've seen Lars and the Real Girl.
1: I don't know. Well, so this this is a movie that I know people that genuinely really like it. And I put it in that category of movies that like, I almost want to put a guest speaker in here to talk about it because I just don't get it.
0: I kind of do. So, first off, I will say that I think this is one of those, like, special movies to me that I, a blend of subject matter, tone, pacing, um, visuals, it just kind of puts me to sleep. And I had, the first couple times I watched this, I struggled with it. Um, I finally completed it one day, like, years after starting it. Because I would just fall asleep, like, a third of the way in.
1: Ah, yes. Yes. Insomnia
0: movies, you know? Yeah. Everyone needs them. Narcoleptic movies. Well,
1: they cure insomnia, right? I mean, you know, you get the fucking
0: idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, So anyway, basically this movie, if you haven't seen it, um, it's a nice little indie. uh, Basically a, for lack of a better term, a socially isolated Ryan Gosling um, has trouble connecting with people. And he purchases a sex doll online and parades it around as if it were a real girlfriend. And basically ends up going to a therapist, and the therapist talks to his family, and slowly the townsfolk start going along with this ruse to kind of therapeutically help Ryan Gosling come out of his shell and move past his past trauma and phobias and things like that. So so it is like... in a, it's a very dark movie, but it does kind of have a heart to it. And I will say, I, I think that the lead performance by Gosling. I mean, that this movie fails if that performance is bad, and I think he does a good job. And it's an early example of him really stretching himself as an actor.
1: Yeah, because I mean, this. I mean, if you're putting this in the timeline, right? This is like right after the Notebook. Yeah, it's just so.
0: The setup that I just gave, Nick. It sounds like that could be, either really hokey. Or I could also see it being kind of like a Mr. Woodcock broad comedy.
1: And it's just plain, like, achingly
0: sincere most of the time. Yeah, it's
1: very sincere. And I give the movie credit for that because it it does, you know, like, the movie has way more heart than you'd think based on its premise. Uh, At the same time, this movie, to me, feels very Wes Um, Anderson-y, you know, very, very color palette centric uh, quirkiness over character um, just the kind of movie that doesn't resonate with me particularly and then on top of that I do th- while I do think gosling is good it was also a movie that at least when when people had told me uh, that I should watch it this is yet again blockbuster error right like people were telling me it was, it was it was really good but they were also telling me how funny it was and I didn't find this movie funny in you know, if, if if you're going for uh you know sort of a lighthearted drama, maybe I can I can go with that. This being a you know something that could could work for a certain demographic of people, but uh, ah, this, is a, this was a nice introduction of uh, you know pretty indie. Uh,
0: <laughs> That's a great way to kind of sum it up. Uh, pretty indie. Uh, yeah. I, I don't know. Uh, I. I I don't really, unfortunately, have much else to say about it. Like, it's just, yeah, I'm in the same camp. I don't think it's that funny. Uh, There are people who love it, and I would recommend if you are interested by the setup of it to go check out one of their reviews or try it out for yourself. But for me, it's just, it's too boring. Uh, The tone is too slow with him trying to go, like, the Wes Anderson route and the very sincerity to which everyone is playing their characters. It just kind of drags the pacing down it's not an enjoyable watch for me.
1: Um. Although it's interesting with all the information you gave about Mr. Woodcock before this, you know, I'm starting to draw a little bit of a parallel here where it's like, imagine doing a double feature where you watch Mr. Woodcock and then Lars and the real girl. I feel like you'd come out of that double feature, a liking Lars and the real girl a lot more and b getting an idea of what he was probably trying to do with Mr. Woodcock. Yeah. So that's my suggestion. Watch that first movie that I didn't even sit down and fucking watch. And then watch this one.
0: The only other thing uh, that I think is worth mentioning is I did uh, watch some interviews specifically about this movie. And apparently he was really involved in Ryan Gosling's process. And, uh, you know, one of the main characters is a sex doll. And they always treated her like a cast member. Like they would never treat her like a prop. Um, So she, like, whenever they had to change her outfit, she would go into a trailer. Whenever she wasn't being actively filmed, she was taken off set and, like, put in a chair. Um, So they were always trying to help him stay in character and establish the connection between the two of them. Um, Which, don't get me wrong, if I was an actor having to play off of a sex doll for, like, a three-week shoot, I'm I'm sure that helped him.
1: Yeah, I mean, I imagine it works. I now want to see a documentary about the making of Lars and the real girl. <laughs> um, Can you imagine, like, the poor PA who has to, like, dress the doll in the in a trailer? That sounds like <laughs> a Pat <laughs> job. That's true. He'd probably do a pretty good job.
0: Yeah. Um, so let's move on. Honestly, just because sure. I don't have enough nice things to say about it.
1: Oh, I think, I think we, co- we covered it. We're doing good. We've covered everything. It's going to be it's a covered. quick episode.
0: Why not? Um, So let's bring up uh, two notable projects that he was working on between Lars and the Real Girl and his next film. Uh, The indie success of Lars and the Real Girl got him on the radar of uh, Senor Spielberg. So he was actually tapped to work on the development and direct the pilot of United States of Tara. Which was a show that I never saw, but people love.
1: Yeah, I am indeed aware that that was once a show.
0: Mm -hmm. But. So now he's on Spielberg's radar. Always a great radar to be on. The other notable thing, I'll come back to the Spielberg mention, the other notable thing is at this time, he is also immediately developing Dallas Buyers Club to star Ryan Gosling.
1: Huh. Interesting. Didn't know that. Which I might like
0: better. I don't know. Like, McConaughey is good in that role, but I I do... I would be interested to see his take on that movie.
1: I mean, sure, I'd be interested to see his take. I don't, I don't know if I'd prefer Gosling in that role over McConaughey personally. Uh,
0: but anyway, so he's on Spielberg's radar. This is how he gets set up with his next film, 2011's *Fright Night*, uh, a remake of the 1985 film of the same name, and
1: Sarah I- loved remaking. Movies from the 80s, whether they were notable or not, if they were horror.
0: And my understanding, Nick, maybe you know a little bit more. I believe Fright Night has a nice little cult status.
1: Well, I mean, okay. So th- the thing is about 80s horror movies is they all have a cult status. <laughs> like the, Nearly every horror movie to come out in the 1980s, whether they were critically successful or not, has plenty of fans because horror is just one of those genres especially slashers in the 80s where like there's just such a there's there's such a horror subsection of the world where they love shit like this you know mm-hmm. um so yeah i mean fright night's not one that uh, admittedly i haven't seen either of them uh, it's a big blind spot when it comes to horror for me uh, i almost watched it for this and then i forgot to
0: no worries um, uh, so i've also never seen the original um, i've heard that it's one of the more campy '80s horror movies, which was always just kind of a thing that turned me off of watching it when I had so many other '80s blind spots. One of these days, I'll finish *Nightmare on Elm Street*. Things like that.
1: Like the the series or the original?
0: The series. I I think. Okay. I've only seen like one in four. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, we're we so not many. missing a
1: lot in that middle, but yeah, I mean, that's yeah, fine.
0: Anyway, um. When this movie came out, I was actually rather excited. Spielberg produced it, uh, which I think is one of the the connections with him kind of shepherding Craig Gillespie. Um, It's got a really fun cast. It was, you know, 2011 Colin Farrell. He's in a really fun (laughs) period in his career. Um, I want to say this is pre-rehab Colin Farrell.
1: This would have been, I mean, everybody would say 2011, this is post-In Bruges. I don't know. I don't oh, know
0: oh, oh I'm really off on my dates. No, so this is post-rehab Colin Farrell. Colin Farrell went yeah. to rehab 2006.
1: I, th- I thought it was like mid-2000s, so. Well, anyway. Um, it... Just do some editing. It'll be fine. What the hell were we talking about, Nick? Let's just go back to Mr. Woodcock. It'll be fine. No, you were saying, uh, you, you were talking about the this movie Colin Farrell was in. Yeah, so I I was
0: an early Colin Farrell fan. I was excited. The trailer made him look like he was having fun. I was hoping I was going to get a little like bullseye phone booth Colin Farrell. Um, And Anton Yelchin was kind of a rising star at this point. I I was excited to see him in a lead. Uh, The rest of the supporting cast, people that I wasn't as familiar with, but I am big fans of now, Tony Collette plays his mom. Uh, Imogen Poots plays his girlfriend. Uh, You've got David Tennant. Having a ton of fun playing, like, a Chris Angel ripoff, um, who's, like, a magician, but also is a, you know, scholarly vampire expert. You got a fun cast. Uh, The premise of the movie is basically a guy thinks his next-door neighbor, who just moved in, is a vampire, and turns out he's a
1: vampire. Great. That sounds like a lot of movies from this time period, so...
0: Yeah, and I was say, this one's fun. It, like, so its setting is this isolated suburb of Las Vegas, which I, I think is just kind of clever. Like, they use it, the fact that, like, you know, it's uh, Las Vegas is more of a uh, temporary destination. Like, you know, people generally don't put down as much routes there. So when people go missing, it's not unexpected. Um, it also, you know, most people work at night so they sleep during the day so like the fact that they don't see him much during the day the windows are blacked out like there's a lot of like justifications for the little clues of maybe he's a vampire that work really well Um, and I think they do a good job in that kind of setting up those pieces early on in the movie where there's a little bit of like ooh maybe he is maybe he isn't but also then the, the pull the rug out from you moment where it's very clear that he's a vampire comes nice and sudden even if you expect it that I think Pacing wise, it's really good. Um, Okay. Yeah, I don't know. This movie's just fun. It's really horny. It's got some good scares. Um, Everyone's a little bit big. It is kind of campy, but like I think everything in it is incredibly well executed for what is it, what it is attempting to be. You mentioned okay.
1: Go for it. Now you you know me and my my general view on vampires, which is they're they're lame. They're one of the lamer. Uh, types of horror villains. Me, as a non-vampire dude, where do you think I would stand on this movie?
0: You specifically, it's hard. I think if you... Well, I bet there
1: are a good amount of our listeners that that think like I do. The vampires are lame.
0: Yeah, I I would say that this is probably one of the more tolerable movies for you solely based off of its very good execution. Okay. Okay. Every good little setup has a nice payoff. There's a high body count. Okay. I, I mentioned that introductory, like, making excuses for the vampire behavior and then the rug being pulled out from under the audience moment is really well done. It's great. Uh,
1: Technically— Is it like a vampire slasher? Is it designed like a vampire slasher? Yeah. Okay. That's not a common way vampires are used in movies, so I like
0: that. It's kind of designed like a vampire slasher. There's also the... The third act culminates in the... All right, I've got to kind of MacGyver and Home Alone my way to go save my girlfriend. Um, And, of course, you know, it takes place in the house next door to his. So, like, there's some fun stuff in the setups and the execution of those moments. Uh, I really think that... Some of his camera work, in particular, more so than, like, Lars and the Real Girl... And certainly Mr. Woodcock, like, he is really flexing his skills. Like, there is a great little mini, like, action set piece involving um, a car chase that's all done in this really fun oneer. Yeah, I I think this is the movie—this is him graduating to, I could direct a blockbuster. Uh, This movie wasn't, like, hugely successful, but, like, I do think he showed enough skill both technically behind the camera— And also in his management of tone that I think he kind of caught the eye of some important people.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. Honestly, you sold it relatively well. I would check this out. Honestly,
0: this is like maybe (laughs) we're going on year nine of the list. This is probably like a fringe recommendation for you. I had fun during it. And I also I have no attachment to the original. There's a good chance that, you know, a lot of people view this as a bastardization but, like, I don't know. we talk, You talked about those 80s remakes. I think the majority of them are bad. But I also have a lot more familiarity with their original source material than I do this. So, I don't know. This gets, like, a solid pass from me.
1: Well yeah. Also, I generally find that unless, like, a, you know, hardcore fans of an 80s horror movie, in my experience, generally are, like semi-forgiving of the remakes. Like, they're not, they're not generally going to like them. But most of the time, an 80s horror fan is going to be like, those bastards remaking this movie. They'll usually go see it, you know? Yeah. And <laughs> I'll say this. Like,
0: I, I kind of respect those fans that are... Call them, like, fundamentalists, whatever. But, like, Spielberg was actively, like, on set designing shots and helping in storyboard creation. Like, this is a level above, I think, what those other ones are. However, it's just well, I mean, it, lesser IP, so it really kind of got forgotten.
1: It's not the version of April Fool's Day, which got remade in 2008 and went direct-to-DVD, right? Like, it's, this is this is a theatrical release studio film with Spielberg involved. It's a bigger deal.
0: Well, honestly, I was thinking more about, like, the My Bloody Valentine, which that was big when we were in college. I feel like the... There was a Friday the Thirteenth. There was a Texas Chainsaw Massacre, House of Wax. Like all of those were remaking B to C level movies and only ending up a B. I think this is remaking well, though, like
1: those, a, those were. I'd argue that the I mean you're you're bigger tier remakes there. Those are I mean those are higher tiered movies in the genre that studios are remaking to capitalize financially off of, you know, trying to strike gold twice. And realistically, those movies were all movies that, you know, they, they were successful the first time due to a certain set of mitigating factors that wasn't there for the remakes. Um, that's the reason you're seeing a lot of them redo it again. I mean, hell, they, you know, the, Rob Zombie Halloween was that era, right? I mean, you know, the, it's, the, I like that it's... There's a lot of stuff... Well, I know, but I mean, you get the point, right? Like, a studio is just going to... Oh, yeah, we'll do Halloween again, but with this music guy. And now they're doing, redoing Halloween again and again and again, right? They're, they might as well just keep fucking going. Um, Actually, yeah, okay, th- this Mick, is...
0: the Halloween, I think, is a really good comparison. What I mean to say is, again, having not seen the original Fright Night, my understanding of it is it is a B-movie. Texas Chainsaw Massacre. When it was originally made, it was less than a B-movie. But when they remade it, they remade it into a modern B movie. Where I think Fright Night is trying to surpass that in its in the intention of the remake.
1: It's hard to say for me with that without seeing Fright Night because the the whole thing is is that that was also made in an era where you know these first this first wave of. You know, slasher movies and, and horror movies had had made so much money that studios were just shitting out horror movies for a few years. Yeah. And like, but I don't know. Like, I I don't think it was designed to be a B movie. Like, I, I uh, my guess is it was a you know that they I th- feel like a lot of studios in the mid '80s you should just hand cameras to directors and go go out there and make a movie and show me some blood and we'll figure it out. You know, but I do believe they were studio-backed films, you know? It's not, like, Texas Chainsaw Massacre was just a dude making what he wanted to make. And that's, yeah. I put that in a very different camp than a lot of other 80s slashers, if that makes sense.
0: No, 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 no. I I totally understand what you're saying. I feel like we're talking different. We're We're making completely different parts, I'd imagine. Yes, that's exactly what we're doing. My point is that when they remade all of those, they were remaking them in to be what the two thousands equivalent of a B movie is where sure, I think that Fright Night was aiming higher. The, sorry, I think 2011's Fright Night was aiming to be higher than that.
1: Yeah. Well, cool. if I recall the, the Friday, the third, uh, no, not Friday the 13th. Uh, it was then we're on M street one. The one they did with, uh, Jackie Earl Haley, fresh off his, uh, the work in the, in Watchmen. Mm-hmm. Uh, the biggest concern, like, the biggest criticism that that movie got across the board was, well, the first movie had fun, and they tried to make this one too fucking serious.
0: I mean, that makes sense. I think the biggest criticism of that movie is it's not Robert
1: Englund. Well, sure. Jackie O'Haley is not. Tell not an actor.
0: Yeah, honestly, yes. that that's always been on my list of, like, I am excited to go through that series. It's one of the reasons specifically is to get to that movie and have a firm opinion of the comparison. Because just so many people love that series. Um, But we're not talking about that. We're We're not. We're we're definitely going to cover one of those directors and we're going to have to watch this and whatever.
1: Yeah, maybe for Halloween or whatever. At least we're only monthly.
0: Um, Yeah, hey Nick, talk to me about 2014's Million Dollar Arm, uh, his next movie. God,
1: you know, the funny thing is, I watched this a few weeks ago and I remember so little about it now. No, I have notes, I'm just kidding. Uh, I, I, but I, if I didn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't. Well, you want me to do a Is little very... shoe
0: leather setup for you? Sure. So Fright Night starts to get him, you know, more eyes on him. He gets hooked up with Disney and he's taken some general meetings and Tom McCarthy had written a draft of Million Dollar Arm. He was like, Tom McCarthy was paid to rewrite either like, you know, some article or an original spec script or whatever. And Craig Gillespie was like, I've always wanted to work on a Tom McCarthy script. I will take this movie. And that's how he got attached and into the Disney bandwagon.
1: That's interesting. So yeah. Million Dollar Arm, the thing is I love sports movies. That's why you gave me this one as my assignment for this, right? Of the movies we hadn't seen, this was this was one that I took. Because uh, I'm a big baseball fan. Well, baseball movies, you know, the David Mickey Evans episode that was a lot of me, baby. You know, uh, so I watched Million Dollar Arm. The story Million Dollar Arm is uh, it's based on a true story, like you know ninety percent of fucking baseball movies. And uh, it's th- this one. Uh, there's a, an, a sports agent uh, played by John Hamm who's having trouble locking down uh, clients. It's very similar to Ballers, the TV show Ballers. Uh, they separated from the him and his partner separated from the big agency because they wanted to show more heart, but no one wants to sign with them because they're not offering signing bonuses and all the fun bells and whistles. And so they meet up with a rich dude to try and keep their company afloat. And John Ham, after randomly watching a game of cricket on TV, decides he wants to go to India and get to uh, and hold a reality TV show where cricket players get taught baseball so that that they can have they can become pitchers in baseball and so he goes to to India and does that and so a portion of the movie is this rather fast moving reality competition in India and then uh, then it's those players getting trained in the US for the big day where they show off for the scouts and they try to get into the MLB Um, along the way he falls in love with his neighbor played by uh, Lake Bell who I like yeah Um, the the problem with this movie and it's the problem that a lot of movies whether they be sports movies or movies that are sort of like this in general have is this movie doesn't know how or when to turn John Hamm into a likable person because his character is designed to be a self centered sports agent. And I like John Hamm. I think John Hamm's a very good actor uh, in the right setting. In this particular case, he's given a character who's kind of an asshole. And he does not bring enough charm or likability to this character for us to continually put up with him being really mean to everyone at all times his like his character's not quite funny enough to justify it. Not quite charming enough to justify it. He's rude to his co-workers. He's rude to his love interest. He's rude to the delightful Indian boys who were just trying to learn baseball and make money. He's not nice to anyone, really, ever, unless it serves him in some way. And I would say that's the case almost through the end of this movie. And so that's very much what holds this movie back for me. Is that it's just, it's a slog to get through because the main character is just such a prick.
0: I honestly did not expect that at all.
1: Yeah. I could not get on board with John having this. It, it was, and it's, you know, he's doing his best, but you know, it, yeah. And beyond that, it's, you know, a lot of, the movie's filled with a lot of problems, um... You know, from a plot standpoint, there's a lot of stuff that's just not not interesting. It takes too long. The pacing's not great.
0: Uh,
1: yeah, it's one of those movies where I get in the beginning, I was sort of on board with it, and it just never, it never materialized into to anything that, as far as I'm concerned, had much value as a sports film. Uh,
0: okay, uh, I want to break this down. Um, yeah. First question: If you replace John Hamm with a different actor, does this movie just immediately work? Because the comparison I immediately think of in my mind is, oh, so they're trying to do, like, a Jerry Maguire thing, but instead of, like, the love relationship thing, it's more of just being a nice person thing.
1: Yeah, he's learning to be a nice person. That's true. Except, like, he doesn't. Like, that's the whole thing is, like, you know, someone at one point tells him, hey, the, the, the Indian guys that you're watching that, you know, don't have much of a grasp on the English language and don't know what they're doing or, or where they're going or really anything at all. They're just trapped in your house uh, and just trying to figure out, you know, he's not even like, like, and so anyway, sorry, I'll get to the point that I get to is like his, so what he does is he goes, okay, uh, I'll take him out for a night on the town. You know, even though he's interacted with them plenty of times, taking them out on a, for a night on the town is not what's going to, make them happy, like it's getting some personal attention. He proceeds to take them to a party of a client that he wants to sign and then ditch them, and he tries to sign the client, and they end up getting into mischief, and then he's all pissed at them. And it's like, what'd you think was gonna happen, you fucking moron? You know? It, it's just, yeah, it, from a plot, from a script standpoint, and when, I mean, Tom McCarthy, I think, is a pretty good writer. I think that this I think that this script is is about a subject that's kind of interesting. But yeah, the main, the main character isn't given any redeemable qualities on paper. Another actor might be able to mask that a little bit better than him, but I don't think it's solved the problem, no. Okay,
0: that kind of answers my second question. Because um, we'd recently both watched Sugar, which deals with uh, a different angle of the inner workings of whatever you would call like farm teams for major league baseball. So I was wondering if this had like some parallels with the culture shock and the, you know, insurmountable odds and grappling with that stuff in any real way.
1: Sort of. It's played a little bit more for, for laughs in this, um, you know, as it's a Disney comedy and then they do hit the serious elements of it too. Um, But, you know, thankfully Lake Bell's there as the kindly neighbor who, you know, asks the, the indian boys questions such as how are you doing you know like i'm just saying, like as a sports agent if i'm looking at it from a from a just business standpoint removing my personal attachment to any character or anything john ham's atrocious at his job because he doesn't even protect his investment he just sort of goes you you fix it uh the the, the pitching coach is bill paxton hey bill paxton and he's just Bill Paxton just pops up, and he's just like Bill Paxton. You fix this, and Bill Paxton is just like uh, I don't know. You're kind of an asshole. And he's like, just you do your job, and I'll do mine. But he doesn't do his job. He doesn't do anything. Like John Ham is just absolutely fucking worthless. I can't continually call him John Ham. His character, his character sucks.
0: Well, I, one of those things is I, John Ham. I don't think anyone has quite figured out how to use yet. Besides Mad Men, like... uh, Right. I I just don't think in movies we have quite figured out what John Hamm is to a general audience. And, I mean, good on him. He has certainly experimented and has succeeded sometimes, but fallen on his face enough other times that I can't say that we've learned anything specific. Uh,
1: I mean, that's fair.
0: He's just waiting for the Mad Men movie, which will probably come in about, like, five years or less.
1: We'll say... Yeah, I don't know, for for John Hamm in this, I'll say as somebody who hasn't seen a ton of John Hamm in film I mean, you know, obviously I'd say what you will about his character's development in Baby Driver I think he's effective at what he is in it
0: Well, he's having um, fun in Baby Driver He's, um, like he's kind of nothing in Bad Times at the El Royale um, Yeah, yeah you just sort of hanging out. I feel like I saw him in some, like, an Eddie Burns-like rom-drom, where I also thought he was kind of being overshadowed by everyone else and not very likable. Yeah, I don't know. He's just, like, he's hard to place. He goes on SNL and has such fun doing comedy, and, like, the couple, like, cameo comedy-level roles he's popped in on, like, it's always fun to see him, but, like, it's not a career. He hasn't quite figured out how to what the next phase is.
1: Yeah, I mean it's fair, and t- the TV to film transition is not always the easiest thing to do in the world. Um, so it's actually rather difficult. So you know I get it, but yeah, I'm just saying. In this, it was um, the script. The script did him no favors. I don't. I don't think he stood a fighting chance for this movie. I will also add one other notable actor who's in this movie because I did sort of bury the lead on the whole. Bill Paxson as the pitching coach thing. Um Alan Arkin's the scout and he brings he brings Alan Arkin to India with him. It's the only scout that would go to India with him. And uh, his whole shtick is he sleeps the whole time.
0: This sounds really boring.
1: This is a very boring movie with a terrible lead. Yeah.
0: Oh Tom McCarthy. Very well respected. I find very hit or miss.
1: This would be a miss.
0: Yeah. Well, his next movie is The Cobbler, so he's back to back there.
1: Ah, fuck that.
0: Yeah. Um, all right. Uh, well, talk about this is one you're excited about
1: now.
0: Yeah, let's talk about 2016. He's still in that Disney train, so he gets hired to make the finest hours. Uh, which is a movie that's basically like a 1995 film that got made in 2016. And you know what? I think it's pretty fun. Um, so it's based on a true story of what is... I, I had to write this down. What is considered the U.S. Coast Guard's most daring sea rescue. So it's like a one of those little tiny moments in history. Um, and... Craig Gillespie is actually brought on as the replacement director. Um, I, I, Robert Schwenke, I believe, is his name, um, had been signed on to this, spent a year developing it, and then <laughs> made the very unfortunate choice to leave this when he was offered a chance to direct the Divergent sequel. Uh, do you know what I'm talking about, Nick?
1: I mean, yeah. You know- Divergent.
0: Uh, divergent, it sounds, uh, Allegiant. Consider,
1: consider, no, I know, I know what you're talking about. It's the I one mean, that, that they, they
0: never finished.
1: Oh well, yeah, then that is worse.
0: Yeah, no, out of the young adult movies, like I think The Maze Runner got all three, but like uh, very clearly that was the one that like they stopped the final movie. They were like oh yeah, we're going to break it into two parts too. And then the third one was so bad that they were like, oh no, we're just going to make it one movie. And then they were like, no, we're going to make it a mini series on Amazon prime. And then they just canceled. It's done. We're, no just, one we're just not going
1: to make it. Yeah. We're just not going to make it.
0: But anyway, so yeah, um, basically Craig Gillespie is brought in as the backup hitter. He has four months to go through casting and pre-production um, I want to say he gets, like, uh, he steps in in April, and his first day of shooting is in September. So, like, real quick turnaround for him doing, like, a, a giant movie with lots of stars involving, you know, a bunch of fucking water. Um, so it starts off with this very schmaltzy setup of our lead character played by Chris Pine. And it's, Chris Pine is, like, afraid to go on a date, with this girl, and they're doing a lot of... I don't know why. They're putting so much effort into making Chris Pine seem like this meekly pushover guy. Which doesn't work, because Chris Pine is kind of like a Greek god. Um, I I never believe that he's nervous to meet any girl.
1: Chris Pine, what a nerd!
0: Yeah, that's kind of what they're trying really hard to do, and I don't think it necessarily aids the story any. Uh, You know, he could just be an average guy. And he is asked to do a Herculean task and perform this daring sea rescue. And he steps up and does it. Like, in these kind of movies, like, I I don't really care. Like, it's not like the perfect storm where I need to know the backstories of the five sailors that we're going to be with through this disaster film. And knowing their home lives because we're constantly cutting back to the bar. Like, that stuff helps the story. All you need to know is that, like, you know, he's got a girl that loves him, and that's it. Anyway, so first 15 minutes, it's really slow. It's set up for Chris Pine, whatever. But then we meet Casey Affleck, who is an engineer of this giant oil tanker off the coast of New England. And uh, the oil tanker is in this bad storm, and all of a sudden, the boat starts leaking. And there's this really cool scene where Chris uh, where Casey Affleck is... Telling, like, one of the guys, look, the radio's not working. I need you to go up, go to the bridge, tell the captain that we got a leak down here. We need to alter this, this, and this. And it's this wonderful, really affecting setup where the messenger is, like, crawling up all the stairwells and the ladders and going across, like, the plank rigging and stuff like that in this storm with a little flashlight. And all of a sudden gets to, like, where the bridge has broke off, and it turns out that the oil tanker is split straight in half in the middle. And like, it, it's those Hollywood moments of kind of disaster told in a very methodical way that that's where I really get into Craig Gillespie. Um, I think it's that Spielbergness running off. Um,
1: okay. I mean, this sounds very Spielberg and it sounds interesting.
0: But yeah, it, I mean, it's simple economic storytelling, but it works so well. Um, so yeah, and then the rest of the movie is we get introduced to the Coast Guard hub, people on shore. Uh, Eric Bana is in there. Um, you've also got uh, Ben Foster, uh, John McGarrow, just like a, a couple like those guys. Um, Good
1: cast, yeah.
0: Chris Pine is told to go out to the boat and cross the, they call it the bar, which I guess is like a a moving sand dune that causes waves to break. And in this certain spot, it's basically just like a, a natural obstacle that no one thinks he can get across. And the whole thing is he's like, it's a suicide mission. And the people in town are telling him it's a suicide mission. He's like, well, I got to go out there. It's my job. And Chris Pine is a man who's good at his job. And we see, you know, the set pieces of on the oil tanker, them trying to steer it so they can ground it. So they won't sink. And all of the MacGyvering that they have to do to basically <laughs> make half of a ship steer. And then you've got the little tiny rescue boat with a couple guys trying to get over the natural obstacle and then find each other and then the rescue and then getting back. It, it's great. I, I really have a fun time and it's got everything I love shipwrecks, disaster shots, sea shanties, a fuck ton of Boston accents. Uh, The MacGyver's survival techniques. People being good at their jobs. Uh, It's got that inspirational moment where everyone bands together. Like, you mess with one of us, you mess with all of us. It's got one of those moments. But for Boston, um, yeah, it's great. Uh, Do I think you would like it, Nick? Uh, We're generally more forgiving on disaster movies and disaster-adjacent movies, so yes. It's
1: true.
0: Uh, It's certainly light on character except for Chris Pine. Dare I say, I think they devote too much time trying to give Chris Pine too much stuff where maybe if they could have sprinkled it around to, like, Ben Foster and a little more Casey Affleck and, like, uh, the ship of Casey Affleck also has just a ton of that guys on it because it ends up being, like, 20 guys left on that side of the ship. So, yeah, they could have spread the wealth there, but it's really fun.
1: Chris Pine, you nerd.
0: Like, it's literally, like, Chris Pine is the meekest person meek is the only word to describe him that's what they're trying to set him up for and he always kind of talks like boston accent he's got like kind of a low boston accent that he can't really do and he's always like well uh, that's the job you got to go out they don't say you have to go back in <laughs> but like i don't care it's so much fun
1: no that sounds like a good time
0: yeah and uh, you know It's a Disney movie, so it's got those Disney touches and that Disney feel. It's never going to get too scary. It's never going to... Like, the stakes are high, but they're never, like, that high. Um, Yeah. But anyway, uh, unfortunately, a movie I like, it was a rather large financial loss. And I think pretty much forgotten for having Chris Pine in between Captain Kirk movies... Captain Kirk movies, fuck me. In between Star Trek movies, um, uh, Ben Foster, Eric Banna, Casey Affleck, like uh, uh, the two girls are also notable, even though I can't remember their names right now. Um, yeah, this movie just doesn't exist, and it's sitting on Disney Plus. Oh, I'll mention one of the one of the guys on the boat is John Ortiz, who I didn't remember was in this movie. And having recently rewatched the entire Fast Saga to get ready for F9. I was like,
1: Oh, it's Braga. Oh wait, is that, is that that dude that said Jack goes boating? Yes. <laughs>
0: yeah. In this, he goes boating, but
1: it doesn't go well. I feel, I feel like, <laughs> that's fine. I feel like referring to him as that, I, I feel like, is he that dude from Jack goes boating could only be about John Ortiz. Because <laughs> like, everyone knows who Phelps Seymour Hoffman is. So, Oh, that dude from Jack goes boating. That's, that's just John Ortiz. The, only person can
0: be. also a fun way to reference like an actor who's popped up in like some real prolific ip it's like oh that guy from that indie movie directed by philip seymour hoffman which was like a bad stage play <laughs>
1: yeah that's a good pull <laughs> good pull
0: all right um let's move on uh i think i j- gushed enough about that movie anything else you want to know about it
1: no i think you covered it you sold me on it once you sell me on it i don't need to i don't need to go too much deeper you know yeah yeah all right, uh, I might watch this after this. I don't know. We'll see. Honestly, I'll see how my night goes. it's a nice. I got some ice cream, it's know? a
0: nice light watch because, like, you know how? How do I want to put this? When it comes to disaster movies, like a pure disaster movie, kind of sucks you in. But then there are those yeah. disaster adjacent movies where, like, it, it, it's less thrilling, engaging of a watch, but it's still really fun. Yeah. I'm trying to think of a very good example. Um, maybe Titanic is like
1: the... That's, honestly, that's a really bad one, though. Bad example. Bad example. Bad example. No matter what, bad example there. I'm trying to think of a good example, but I don't.
0: This is a really... This is a bad movie that no one has seen, but there's a movie called USS Indianapolis, which...
1: Yeah, I know about kids, right? Yeah,
0: it's the same kind of a thing where like but where that is a bad movie um this is a disney movie with spielbergian touches so take that for what it is sure all right uh, let's talk about his next movie cuz uh so that movie honestly like real big flop not known whatever and he comes back and uh has an oscar nominated film in 2017 he directs Itaninha
1: yeah which is a movie that uh that, that I have some of the most mixed opinions on, but I do like it. I like it quite a lot, actually. Um, I guess I'll, I'll go into the, the plot. Yeah, give uh, us a little
0: overview, and then we'll kind of dig in. Yeah,
1: well, so it's, it's always interesting when you start talking about, you know, you, you know how I am. I'm a pain in the ass with, with you know, actual events, right? Um, but, so I, Tanya, being the, you know, t- telling the story of, of. Uh, Disgraced figure skater Tanya Harding, who is most famous for uh, at least in the, the tabloids and the figure skating world for orchestrating a hit on uh, her main her main competitor, if you will, uh, that it ultimately didn't work out, but she got ultimately banned from professional figure skating for life, went on to do celebrity boxing and shit like that. Um, but it's her entire story and the this is the the story of Tanya Harding uh, his life from the perspective of Tanya Harding as well as her husband at the time the, the movie doesn't make any bones about the fact that it is very specifically a, a story from the perspective of the people in, implicated in the crime involved um, and that's honestly I think why it Works better for me. I can get into more stuff here in a second. But are, are we, are we, is this all making sense so far, Zach? Yeah, I mean... So I feel like uh, Tanya
0: Harding and Nancy Kerrigan were... Uh, I forget when it happened. I feel like I was young. But it was... It was 90s. It was early 90s. It was just a pop culture thing that I was aware of. Um, and particularly like, oh, breaking someone's legs, you're gonna... Uh, tanya harding her or she's gonna get nancy kerrigan or whatever like i'm sure there was a couple bad snl sketches where they made that joke
1: yes i'm sure that's i mean that was a big i mean it was a huge story right because like you know you start talking about these, like, you know, Olympian athletes. You know, we've got the Olympics uh, coming up now. Maybe I shouldn't say that. That's stuff that dates the show. Damn it. retract Retracted. It. Uh, but, you know, the Olympics may be coming up in whatever year this happens to be. And, uh, you know. The, the, also, maybe uh, coming up.
0: I honestly, I haven't followed what's going on. But, like, I, we could be boycotting the Olympics. It could be closed for COVID. Uh, who knows?
1: But then Now you're saying a bunch more stuff that dates the show. What if someone's listening in 2030? You don't know? <laughs> uh Anyway, my my yeah, boy. Yeah, but you know, with with the Olympics and stuff like that, when it comes to you know the behavior of uh, Olympic athletes is always a big thing. Right now, you know, you've got the stuff with the the runner smoking weed and whatever, right? Um, I can't do this without dating the show. I'm sorry, Zach. Don't fire no, me. No, no, no. It's okay. Um, I, I don't.
0: I don't care about it. Be dating <laughs> for future. Once it's out, it's date stamped. It's more of like yeah. Hey, guess what? Listener, we record our episodes in advance because we get busy and have down periods. And it also takes me a while to edit.
1: So like, this is a live show. Whenever you're listening, I'm Ugh. trying to think
0: of something incredibly topical. I could bring up, uh, so someone could figure out the date if they wanted to. Um, but I don't know what's going on in the world right now. Cause I, I just worked all day and started talking about Craig Gillespie immediately after, um,
1: yeah, no, with that. Uh, but anyway, you know, the different stories pop up in the tabloids about what's going on, and so an Olympic athlete, you know, putting out a hit on another Olympic athlete is like major fucking news, right? Yeah. And the whole thing, you know, when it, when it gets into the, you know, getting into the specifics of the the case, what we know, what we don't, which I, I will cover here momentarily, uh, but this movie to get to it as a movie outside of the events themselves. It, it tells the story uh, of, of Tanya Harding, uh, who's played by, I don't know, a child, and then eventually by Margot Robbie. Uh, and uh, her mother, played by Allison Janney, her abusive mother, uh, Allison Janney, who uh, won an Oscar for this as well. Well deserved. Um,
0: I love Allison Janney. Yeah, she
1: was, she was great. Uh, her uh, uh, Tanya Harding's husband's uh, played by Bucky Barnes, right? Yeah,
0: Sebastian Stan. Yeah. As, the real guy's uh, name is a, Jeff Galoubi, because that's a ridiculous name. Yeah,
1: Galoubi. This is one of the yeah one of the people they interviewed for the movie. Um, and then uh, his his fat friends played by uh, uh, the remember the name guy who's also the Juggalo on Always Sunny. Um, I don't know the. No,
0: uh, this is the the introduction. This is the movie that made Paul Walter
1: Hauser. That's it, Paul Walter Hauser. Well, I was always a fan of him when he played Richie on Always Sunny. You know yeah i honestly i kind of forgot that's him yeah but this is his first go watch that episode He is so little you're just like oh look at that little, little, little big guy this is um, his first major anyway.
0: film though like he had done like two yeah, or three sure. things before it and then it's this and then he's like in a spike lee movie and then he's in a clint eastwood movie like dude's great
1: yeah yeah the remember the name movie that i always forget the name of this is a person's name and why would i just remember that richard jewell um that's it. Yeah, I was gonna say Frankie Diamonds, but that's a different person. <laughs> uh,
0: Jewel Diamonds. So... I get it. I get it.
1: <laughs> uh, no. Uh, so anyway, uh, Frankie Diamonds is, is in it as well. Um, and so, but it follows the story of Tanya Harding as she uh, was sort of sort of became the, the the bad girl of figure skating, if you will. Um, you know, she played by her own rules. She caught a lot of shit because it's a Support of the the, the rich children, but uh, she was not. She used to make her own costumes and shit. You know, it's it's the outcast story, and then, you know, it's told very much through, like, character interviews, almost mockumentary style. Um, And personally, I found the movie to be incredibly watchable and quite funny uh, because of the style. It's also a very big style break for Gillespie, Based on the kind of movies he's done so far, so I really enjoyed the movie from its setup overall, uh, and I think it's I think it's very good. I know you, Zach, had you, you were a little bit more lukewarm on it, if I recall. Almost less. I, I'm trying to think of
0: like the best way to get into my problems with it. Um, so no, that's the the important thing to grapple with is probably going to be the uh, balance of. Tone and point of view. I think that's kind of where yes. our big griffs go. Yeah, tone and view. Uh, Nick, I, I think uh, we can both agree that the majority of film is told with the point of view of... How do I say this? With the unreliable narrator point of view of the people who was involved, right? Yes. And that's one of my big problems with it is because A, you... I, I Like the story and the basics of this have been in the zeitgeist enough that it's very hard for me to glob on to a movie that's going to totally portray this person as the underdog and the outcast and the person who's misunderstood
1: well the person i mean tanya harding was an
0: underdog right yeah but like i don't give a shit because she beat a girl's legs in
1: so the, the, and this is where it gets tricky, right? So, like, what I don't, okay. If I'm talking talking about audience reactions to this specific film, right? Yeah. There's two schools of thought that, which are, if you're going with the extremes. The, the first being, fuck this movie. She definitely did it. Uh, and this movie, by casting her in a sympathetic light, is, you know, really shitty to to Kerrigan. And then the opposite end of the spectrum, which is, yes, this movie's finally showing that she's really an underdog and the a, actually a good person, and it's just figure skating doesn't like poor people. Oh, okay, and
0: so, no, no, no.
1: The thing, well, let, let, let me finish the point, though, here, right. I'm... Away from both of those extremes, I get I get the logic behind both. The things that are important in terms of historical accuracy for this film is one, while whether true or not, the court of law was never able to uh, implicate Tanya Harding in this crime. A. B. Tanya Harding has consistently maintained her innocence when it comes to this crime. Now. If I'm looking at it from the perspective of Nancy, Nancy Kerrigan, right? I I probably wouldn't give a shit. I probably wouldn't want this movie made, right? Uh, I wouldn't want a movie that's going to gonna, that's gonna cast, cast a bunch of sympathy on uh, the negative reason my name is known throughout a lot of society. Uh, and, and I do think there is a fair reason for skepticism of the point of view of Tanya Harding. That said, I think it the movie is fair in its sense of coming from the standpoint that this is the point of view of this character, and they also bring in the Sebastian Stan stuff uh, as the opposite because he's the one who alleged she was involved after they broke up.
0: Yeah, I, I guess I'm. I don't know. L- let me break down how I, where I land. How do I want to phrase this? Uh, I I think that it's interesting that you're telling the story from her point of view on quote-unquote quote 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 what allegedly actually happened however i find that there's a lot of points in the movie where the the audience from the outside is being asked to judge them for their outcast lower class nature which i i don't think you can argue too hard is an unfair thing like uh, basically this is a movie about a bunch of trailer trash people who are in a world of competitive figure skating with the rich elite and this person does well but doesn't do well enough so like there is this element of kind of judginess i feel from a directing point of view is put upon these main characters now the fact that you know some of them were charged with a crime fine whatever but it is kind of a little like oh okay so we're just making fun of the hicks even though the story is kind of framed from an idea of they are outcasts and underdogs and we should look at them in a different light because things were stacked against them it was unfair and then also specifically with tanya harding there are moments where you have tanya harding talking about like how unfair something went and how bad it went but then like there's one scene where it cuts to her like at a bar late at night before the competition ripping shots and i'm like I, I, as an audience member, like, you're giving me the visuals where I think you want me to judge her, but then the majority of the plot and narrative is going to be taking the side that we shouldn't be judging her or that we have judged her incorrectly. So that imbalance is the big number one reason why it didn't work for me.
1: No, I mean, I, that that totally makes sense. I, I think that, for me, I'm I'm a little bit less... Worried about that uh, that particular outlook, predominantly because I don't. The thing that I didn't see with it was, while there may have been some judgment on lifestyle choices of 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 Tanya Harding and that sort of thing, I think that Gillespie does a pretty good job of not not forcing an opinion. I think that you as an audience member can take a few different stances from the way that they live. And I think that while there are definitely some, some humor, there's definitely some humor in your, eh, there's definitely some humor within the movie that is at the expense of the lower income characters. I don't think at any point it's ever malicious, or it never at no point to me did it ever feel super mean spirited, which is something that you know I've had a problem with in in certain movies as well. I don't think Gillespie hates these characters. I think Gillespie has some fun at their expense, but I don't I don't think that's necessarily uh, a dislike in any way. I don't I don't think he hates
0: them either. I do think it, it, it tiptoed a little bit too far over the line of malicious for me in a couple spots but then you pair that with the big crux of the argument is did she do this or did she not and
1: which is a tough thing for for them to to get
0: it's a tough thing for them to grapple with and I I left the movie thinking that Tanya Harding has convinced herself that she was not implicated at all but absolutely was. And it's those l- I wish I I think that's a really interesting point of view to take. I wish there was a lot more evidence to support that conclusion.
1: I well, think there are only I mean, tastes of when it that comes to, specifically. When, when when it comes to evidence, I mean, it's the the whole thing right is that the onus is on the accuser to, to provide evidence, the only evidence that, that Tanya Harding was ever actually really involved is the testimony of her ex-husband. And, you know, th- well, don't get me wrong. If you ask my personal opinion, do I think she did it? I would say it's likely. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, a- At the same time. Uh, You know, I always feel bad for people that get destroyed in the court of public opinion in the way that Tanya Harding did. I mean, she was ripped apart as if she did it before she did it, right? And so you think about something that's just been in sort of the, the, you know, the the zeitgeist of popular culture since the early 90s you know you're talking our entire lives yeah. right and so like when the idea gets presented that maybe this thing we've always thought is true might not be true uh, i i my initial reaction is very negative but then upon critical thought i'm a little more open to it if that makes sense And this movie gave me that kind of thought which i found interesting i do think there are as stated before, there are some reactions to this movie that I think are kind of shitty on both sides. But as is, I think it's a very interesting art piece for the reason that and even the coming down to the conversation you and I are having at this moment.
0: Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, certainly I think both of us would say we would encourage our listeners to check it out and see where you come down on it. Because I i just i don't think i can recommend it i think it falls too much on the soft three hard two realm
1: yeah and for me this is a pretty clear-cut form
0: um the other thing i think we should mention that i remember it being talked about a lot when this movie came out is because this if i'm not mistaken is not too far away from guardians of the galaxy release and uh this movie's got a pretty banging soundtrack and that was one of those—I feel like we end up talking about this every week, and we got to find a better name for it, but the Adam McKay-style pop history.
1: Maybe the, uh, Adam McKay has earned it to be after his name.
0: All right. But there are definitely influences of this in that. Um, and— yeah. Well, and I'll, I'll clarify, I
1: like this better than anything I've seen from Adam McKay in, in this in
0: this genre. Well, I was just going to say that, like, it's very heavy on the soundtrack, but I do think that the soundtrack, not only is it fun, but it is specifically there to kind of uh, do a little bit of either uh, heavy lifting in uh, scenery, time, place, exposition, or in mood. And I, I don't have a problem with that, like, I, going through it. No, I think it's very well yeah. used, yeah. So yeah, that's really all I have to say about that. Cause I'm, I think we're just agree to disagree. We're on opposite sides of this one.
1: Yeah. It happens, man.
0: Yeah. All right. So, um, his last film is the most recent one. Uh, it is Cruella in 2021, which came out not too long ago. Uh,
1: the most shocking part about this movie is how you felt about it. Yeah. I think this movie kind of slaps. Um, Okay, so I'm, I'm going to try and
0: break this down as best I can. Um, we went on a long tirade about the live-action Disney movies. And in particular, at that time, neither of us had seen Mulan. Um, but we were talking about Jungle Book, and I, I believe, Nick, we both kind of came down on the side that like it, it's not enough of a departure from the original animated movie, though it is at least a little bit different.
1: I mean... <clears throat> Yeah, I don't think they're bringing enough to the table to warrant its existence other than for, you know, capital gain, but yeah. I mean...
0: All right, so they updated Mulan, and I finally watched Mulan. And you know what? They are They are not sticking to the animated movie as a straight guideline source material like they are with some of the other ones, and that's certainly interesting.
1: Um, now, is that, is that primarily, not to get super into another movie that isn't the one we're supposed to be talking about, but is, isn't that primarily due to, uh, shall we say, cultural sensitivity or increased cultural sensitivity?
0: Probably 200%, but it's also not no. great. So, like, who gives a shit? I
1: mean, I'm just saying, you don't need to add Eddie Murphy into this. <laughs> that, it, that movie needed Eddie
0: Murphy, honestly. Um,
1: <laughs> the, the, probably, yeah, yeah. I don't doubt that. But I bring up
0: um, a I bring up a previous argument that no one else has listened to to provide context for the sense of one of the things I really liked about this is it is a very large departure from the source material. Uh, I don't really remember the uh, 101 Dalmatians with Glenn Close. Uh, I'm no matter what it is much more akin uh, to the animated movie than this ever is. This I'm sure. is a prequel. Where they have changed the time period and some of the setting, and they are using influences of the characters. And dare I say, I hope Disney continues to take this route if you're gonna make a live action movie doing spin offs that are slightly adjacent, or a prequel, a sequel, something where it's familiar enough, but not totally. And dare I say, Cruella was. Far enough from the source material that, like, I almost kind of wish her name wasn't Cruella and it functioned as something else. Because the couple times where they really try and tie it back into 101 Dalmatians, I think, are the strangest moments. Uh, The rest of the time, it's just a real fun story about this diva who's kind of learning whether or not she's evil and never quite comes down on one side or the other. Uh... And it's real fun. So, uh, odd. No, it's certainly odd. Uh, The first thing we got to talk about is in the first five minutes, Cruella DeVille, whose real name is Estella something. I don't don't even know if we ever learn it, but young Estella and her mom uh, go to this fancy party so her mom can basically ask the rich lady who owns the house for some money. And... Estella witnesses Dalmatians pushing her mom off of a cliff. In a very dramatic sense, it opens the movie. It is incredibly jarring. It's comical. uh, But it's heightened so much that it sets the mood for what turns into be a real fun heightened story. Um, So...
1: So, to clarify, you like the opening where the Dalmatians kill her mom.
0: Honestly, like yeah, it's it's pretty fucking stupid, but like it's fun. And yeah.
1: It's just a, it's a weird thing without me having seen it. It's just so weird to hear that that it's good. And <laughs> like, that, and like Nick, that that's what it I is,
0: mean. It is so absurd, it's comical.
1: Is this, like, my love of Battleship? Maybe, but this is, like, a
0: good movie. Um, (laughs) Battleship? No, so if you can imagine this, it is literally, like, the mom is, like, a poor lady, and, you know, she's wearing a kind of nice dress, but whatever. But her mom is talking to this, uh, like, you don't see who the person is. It turns out that it's, spoilers, uh, Emma Thompson. But, like, she's talking to this lady in this big ball gown, and then... Three Dalmatians are chasing Estella through the party, and they run outside and run past Estella and literally run up to the mom and, like, push her off of a balcony like a horror movie style, where it's, like, a stone balcony overlooking the cliff, and she just flips right over it comically like a ragdoll.
1: Like, I don't know how I'm
0: supposed to react to this. Whatever. Let's move past it. The bulk of the story, that's just the ridiculous setup. The bulk of the story is she then pairs up with uh, Horace and Jasper. And um, Horace is played by Paul Walter Hauser, returning again. He's kind of fun. He's got a little dog with an eye patch that, like, picks locks and stuff. And they're running grifts and schemes. And there's some fun shit with that, where they're just, like, you know, stealing stuff, living like street rats. Uh, They got a couple dogs. It's fun. And then... She, you know, her whole thing is that she is a talented fashion designer. So she designs all of the intricate costumes for them to pull off their griffs. And eventually is like, I want more for my life. She gets a job at a prestigious fashion company and ends up working her way to Emma Thompson's assistant. So you've got this weird, like... You got the ridiculous opening with the dogs killing her. Then you've got this fun grift con section of the movie. And then the movie turns into Devil Wears Prada. And then once Emma Stone realizes that Emma Thompson is the one that has killed her mom and caused her all of this pain, it turns into, like, I've heard it compared to Joker, uh, which is a bad movie and much worse than this. Uh, But it turns into this weird, like, dual narrative where she's, you know... By day, the meek assistant helping Emma Thompson pull out her fall fashion line. And by night, she's upstaging Emma Thompson with these great shows of fashion display. And I had fun during all of it. It also has a fucking banging soundtrack. They set it in like 60s and 70s London. I I shit you not, Nick. I bet you the music budget for this movie was double the rest of the cost. It is nonstop huh. wall to wall hits. Um, I wrote something down. <laughs> ELOs, Doors, Hendrix, Zombies. Th- the only people they didn't get were the Beatles, and then they had Beatles covers in there. Cool. And so, yeah, uh, it's really good. Um, as things develop on and on, I don't want to give too much more away about how the plot culminates and stuff, but, like, again, this movie. This 101 Dalmatians live-action prequel is part Devil Wears Prada and part con movie. and Well, con heist movie. So it's a weird amalgam, but I think it really works. And Emma Stone really does tie it all together, playing this character of Estella who turns into Cruella. They have some dumb bullshit justification for that, but like... Once she is in and grappling with basically these two sides of her personality, not in a multiple, not in like a schizophrenic way, but just in a kind of like, well, I've been downtrodden all my life. I can put on this character and take power for myself. I think it turns into this really, really fun movie. Um, the the costumes are fantastic. I can't imagine this doesn't win an Oscar. Um, I, I said the soundtrack's banging. Uh, I'm trying to think what else I can really say about it.
1: On costumes, you know, it's uh, it's only halfway through the year, so we'll
0: see. Um, I mean, this is pretty amazing. I'll also say, just a little prediction. I could see this turning into, like, a nice uh, LGBTQ staple. Like, it's got... Like, it's a movie about a bunch of sassy queens backstabbing each other. No, I mean, that makes sense, uh, yeah. But you know what? That's real fun to watch. Um, it, it, It's just... Nick, this movie is so different. I'm shocked that Disney allowed it to happen. Like, it's it's not much of a departure. Well, see, is, I don't know. Like
1: when I when I, when I heard they were making this, it reminded me of Maleficent. Like, where do you stand on that comparison?
0: I haven't seen Maleficent or uh, Maleficent Two. My understanding of it is that like they're still very much playing in the world. Um, and they're trying to like, dare I say, I, I feel like that is almost closer to like Snow White and the Huntsman where like they're retelling the tale and then there's a little bit of like squeakiness so they can not kill her off at the end of it. I don't know. Uh, dare I say, maybe I should watch Maleficent. Maybe I would enjoy it. Cause I like I this mean, so if much. you really
1: like this, I, I imagine going the route of other Disney villain vehicles might be, might be something that you like.
0: Yeah. yeah. Um. But anyway, the whole time, I just praise the movie a lot. It's hokey. A lot of big exposition dumps. Uh, Basically, they have to make Emma Thompson so hyper-evil so that we kind of can immediately, you know, grab on to Emma Stone and and root for her. Side with throughout, Yeah. (laughs) But uh, I don't know. That's kind of the thing. Like, you have to grapple with the fact that... Narratively, we have grown up with, oh, Cruella DeVille is the woman who wants to kill and skin puppies, and there's a lot of dogs in this movie that they tread this very fine line of, like, I wish they would have even gone so far as to, like, retcon some shit into, like, oh, I never wanted to kill the puppies, I, I never wanted to skin them, I just love dogs as pets, and I want to, you know, some something along those lines, it... I I think that I was so swept up in the production design and the soundtrack and just the bonkers nature of this Disney live-action movie that I was able to set aside the fact that this is about the lady who wants to skin puppies in the dog animated movie from, like, the 50s.
1: So what you're saying is if if I, Tanya had better costumes... No. no, I mean overall, I mean yeah, maybe I'll maybe I'll watch it at some point. I'm probably gonna put it off till it's on Disney Plus. For being honest, but you know, yeah, yeah. Um, it's interesting that you liked it. That's cool. I haven't heard a lot of people say that. It yet. was
0: honestly the most shocking thing. Um, it, it is. Don't get me wrong. It's got its problem spots, and it's really, it's probably a half hour too long. Uh, but again,
1: how long? It's like
0: 220. 220?
1: Fuck oh. I know it's
0: north of 2. Um, It's at 215.
1: Okay. For some reason, that five minutes less is a lot less by the tour.
0: It is. But, I, oh. I mean, this movie does not need to be above two hours. In no way, shape, or form. But. No. You know, in I think it was the John Favreau episode we had railed on Disney. It's something that, like, we continually talk about is what Disney is doing with their old IP. And, I mean, the company owns the world right now and the world of entertainment. This is a interesting new step for them. Um, and, you know, I do think Craig Gillespie probably had something to do with it because he's now signed on to do the sequel as well. Right on. Um, and supposedly, the sequel for Cruella is going to be... He's grafting it off of The Godfather Part Two, So it's going to be like, you know, young Corleone and old Corleone, it's going to be like the Cruella we saw in the movie versus old Cruella?
1: I mean, after After sure. what he did with this, I'm like, yeah. That sounds fucking I'll weird. Let's go. Listen, if you if you like this movie in spite of every odd choice that was made, like, yeah, I'm just going to trust the dude to do whatever the fuck he, he does, you know? Yeah. Um, Maybe that's the metaphor for Gillespie. He's like a method to the madness, sort
0: of. I don't know. It's just weird. Like, maybe he's just an indie guy who had a bad first experience, got under the wing of Spielberg, so he learned some tricks, and is... I I mean, he's only made, like, what is this, six, seven films? Like, he,
1: maybe he's not fully cooked yet. That's very possible, but it's interesting because you've got, like... You know, I, I, I get the there's almost the narrative you got like Lars and the Real Girl being what he really wanted to make, Mr. Woodcock being the, you know, sort of the preceding version where audiences didn't respond to it. Then you got Fright Night, him doing, and then Million Dollar Arm and uh, Finest Hours, him getting his feet wet a little bit more Disney based. I, Tanya, him doing, and that this is where he's now making, you know, Oscar contender type, you know. Maybe that's like an escalation came from movies. the Lars and the Real Girl that Lars and the Real Girl track and then you got Currow where he's almost tying it all together. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. You're right, it's hard to it's hard to pin down exactly what he is or exactly what he's trying to do, but I'm I'm there for it. I'm interested to to see where this career goes cuz even with the that's another thing where I'm looking at a lot of these movies and they're either super under the radar or movies that, that have fan bases with strong opinions yeah so he's doing something right there. Well I'm curious so the
0: the next direct thing that he has coming out I want to say it's coming out soon is he's doing the mini series that uh, I want to say was acquired by Hulu unfortunately um, but it is a mini series limited about uh, it's called Pam and Tommy and it's Sebastian Stan and lily james uh the girl from baby driver playing pamela anderson and tommy okay so like maybe he's going back to more of an Itania thing there i i that again like a a guy that maybe he just kind of does whatever suits his fancy i also just really like music well I, i think that's obvious i mean the amount of music in cruella nick it made me blush thinking of the money that they spent.
1: Who won with I, Tanya? I, mean, I, Tanya had a killer soundtrack.
0: I, I, dare I say, the music budget in Cruella is almost as bad as Suicide Squad, but like, it is all the biggest rock stars of the 60s and 70s. Hmm. Well,
1: that's pretty hardcore, man.
0: Yeah, I don't know. I can't believe, I, I was so shocked I came down well on Cruella. Um, all right. So let's wrap this shit up. Um, yeah, it's going to be a short episode I think, that has gone for an hour think, and a half.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's a, I'd say it's a pretty normal length. Let's do, let's do top. Let's do bottom. Let's do uh, hidden gem. I might not even have one for all these, but we'll fucking see. I'm, I'm going to say something. <laughs> so,
0: all right. Um, uh, start me off. What's your top
1: Top, I got to go, go. I, Tanya. I think that it's, uh, Movie I've got the strongest opinion about. I also think it's the best thing that I've seen that he's done. Um, you know, maybe that'll change when I see some more of his shit. But as of now, I Tanya's. I Tanya's the pick for me, man.
0: Um. All right. My top. Oh, th- this is a wrestling match, but I think I'm going to go with my top as. Right night. Yeah. I don't know. There's something about Friday night where like it's he he's matured as a filmmaker past the first two, but it's still got this like fun punk rock energy to it. And it's really horny. I don't know. Like a movie that could have so easily tipped one direction or the other into terrible. I think he does good. I think it's his top.
1: Interesting. Cool. My bottom is easily million dollar arm. (laughs) Fucking John Hamm. Come on,
0: man. And no surprise, mine is Mr. Woodcock.
1: Uh, <laughs> terrible movie, don't watch it. Uh, and Hidden Gem, uh, based on the fact that I don't really have one, I'm just going to say Cruella, because I'm still kind of shocked at how much you liked it. <laughs> I am, too. I Like,
0: I don't know, you'll probably think it's real stupid, but there's something to love about its level of absurdity. Uh
1: I mean, to be fair, you did try sell me real hard on Hubie Halloween, and then I watched it and was like, eh. <laughs> um, so, you know, things happen. But as of right now, no. I'm very impressed with your love for Coella. He gets my Hidden Gem moniker without even watching it. Solid. Which lo- allows me
0: to pick the finest hours. The reason I wanted to cover this guy is my Hidden Gem. Because uh, it's just a
1: nice movie. All right. Yeah. But anyway, that's that. That was a, That was a fun little trip for everyone, I hope. And uh, join us next time when uh, we cover uh, that, that nerd Chris Pine some more. Yeah, I don't
0: I don't know what we got lined up, uh, but it might be a Chris Pine.
1: There might be a guest on here with us, or there might be, uh, I don't know, nothing. Who knows what order these come out in. You know, it really depends on whether I send them to Zach to edit. That's, that's I'll email you true. some of those old ones, by
0: the way. Oh, thank you very much.
1: Uh, um, so- I'm going to send them in... Poor order. Also, one day we'll finish that episode we did with Cass. Yeah, one
0: day we will go back.
1: Re- re-record thirty minutes of audio and then just patch it over. Cassie being like,
0: "Oh God." <laughs> hey, I'm glad that we're doing this. I'm glad that we've gotten better at this. Hopefully, my audio sounds better than it did last week, last month. Um, we'll, we'll see how it works out. But thank you for joining us on this deep dive of Craig Gillespie. Uh, again, uh, my name is Zach D'Antonio. Find me on Twitter and Letterbox. You, you,
1: you say again? We never said our names the first time. Should edit that in. I'm not gonna do that. Um, yeah, no, no. I'm Nick Doriso, and you can find me. I don't know, probably Letterboxed. Yeah, probably not anywhere else.
0: And again, uh, this is a career in film. Please rate, review, subscribe, all that kind of good stuff. Uh, if you leave us a review on iTunes, we're definitely gonna talk about it. Maybe we'll send you some shit. Who knows? But give us some love so we can feel gratified in continually doing this.
1: Also, definitely don't donate to our Patreon because it doesn't exist yet.
0: No, but Nick will just take (laughs) donations via Venmo.
1: Yeah. uh, You don't
0: know what your Venmo handle is. All righty. Have a great week, everyone. (laughs) Uh, Thank you again for listening. Goodbye.
1: Love you.